According to StatsCan's latest estimates, about 5,032,000 students will return to K-12 education on Tuesday, plus another 1,996,000 students are going to be attending some sort of post-secondary institution. Each one of them, plus every other young person, baby, toddler, not in school, is on the hook for $18,000 in federal debt, another $18,300 on average in provincial debt, and approximately $82,500 in unfunded liabilities, which are essentially pension health care benefits that have been promised with no money set aside, so our kids are on the hook for it. Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based, no-fee investment in the tech side of things. Hey, why don't you get more information by going to soleraclub.com. Economist and philosopher Frederick Bastiat famously said, in quotes, The state is that great fiction by which everyone tries to live at the expense of everyone else, end of quote. Unfortunately, the definition of everyone else has increasingly come to mean our children. And it's appropriate to remind you of these facts as our children prepare to head back to school on Tuesday amidst predictable declaration of children are our greatest asset, our future, and other such pap. But these facts tell a very different story, and hence they're uncomfortable, especially if you think of yourself as a caring or progressive or some sort of self-serving definition. Let me share a few more facts that we better ignore. According to a recent study by the C.D. Howe Institute, our children are inheriting $244 billion in unfunded liabilities for public sector pensions alone, $618 billion in federal debt, $1.3 trillion in overall government debt. These numbers aren't part of the school curriculum. Our children will be totally unaware of them. But I'll tell you, as a father of three, they're part of my curriculum. But we can't talk about the financial burden we're leaving our children for services we consumed because it would change the political game. I mean, how could our leaders really stand up and promise more, more, more that we're not prepared to pay for if we acknowledge that we haven't paid for what we've already consumed? And if there's one thing that's clear in this election campaign, there is going to be no meaningful change. It'll be more of the same no matter who forms government. No, I get that that's not part of the political narrative, especially of opposition parties who promise to change, but any inspection of their platform reveals it's a lot more of the same. Big government, big bureaucracies, a bigger divide between public sector and private sector compensation. Not one party is recommending any change to who's already on the gravy train. They all support the status quo. The only difference seems to be that the Liberals and NDP want even more of the status quo. The next federal election debate, I think, is on September 17th. It's hosted by the Globe and Mail. And you can bet the financial burden we're handing down to our children won't be on the agenda, just like it wasn't mentioned in that first debate. In fact, there's no sign it's on the agenda of any commentator in this country. I mean, think about this. Over 100% of the income tax collected from anyone under 35 goes to just pay annual interest on the federal debt. In other words... On average, they work for nearly half the year to pay interest on debts they didn't incur. You know, i got to admit, I'm absolutely flabbergasted that most parents don't seem to give a darn. And the kids themselves, of course, don't have a clue. But that's a product of an education system that refuses to teach even the fundamentals of finance and economics. Come on, after all, if the kids actually knew what we were doing to them, the financial burden they're inheriting, I don't think they'd be so willing to go along with the progressive left or the center or the right, the status quo would actually get threatened. 
And I've had that anecdotally talking to my kids' friends. They have no clue about this. And every time I tell them, they're outraged. As economist Thomas Sowell so accurately observed, for short-term political gain, in order to make certain constituencies happy, in order to give people what they want with no sacrifice, we've been willing to throw future generations under the bus. Well, we've done that in spades. And that's clearly okay with the majority of Canadians. I'll take a break. I'm coming back. I've got Rob Levy's top three stories of the week. Very interesting ones this week. Also, I've got the most fascinating poll I've seen from the federal election campaign. Maybe the first time I ever thought, hey, some people are really getting this. I'll share that with you before the top of the hour. Also, I've got Stephen Todd on today. We're a Todd Market Forecast. I mean, come on, there's so much to talk about in the markets. I'll chat with him about it. I want to know what Victor Adair's been trading this past week, and he'll tell me that live from the trading desk. Ozzy Jurek on this one sort of section of real estate that always seems to be undervalued. He'll tell us why, what it is, and why. We'll do all of that. You're listening to Money Talks with a goofy award, a shocking stat, all coming your way in the course, Radio Network. Coming up, I've got the, I thought, the most interesting poll on this federal election. As I said, it makes me think people might actually start, or might be getting it a little bit here. But right now, I'm going to start with Rob Levy. But I want the number one story that you didn't hear about. And I think it's an important one. Rob, what is it? This week, Mike, it's the, the country of Brazil. The Brazilian Real this week posting its biggest weekly drop since March, sitting on a fresh 12-year low as their finance minister this week tabled a budget that reveals a deficit amounting to 9% of the, the country's GDP. I think this is one of the things we've been, it's one of our themes on Money Talks is where the problem is going to really start is in the emerging markets. China being part of that story, obviously, garnering the headlines over the last two months. But we've been saying it back for a couple of years that the debt crisis would take place. The next leg, I think, and it's just my guess, was going to start in emerging markets. That looks a little more obvious now. And, you know, Brazil used to be one of the powerhouses of emerging markets that we always talked about. But boy, things have changed there. They absolutely have, and since the last, for the last decade, they have been an economy that, to satisfy their creditors, have ran budget surpluses, just so creditors would feel comfortable holding the country's debt, and that goes back to the 90s when there's rampant hyperinflation in their country, but they just, since the, the 2000s, they've had a commodity boom, their economy hasn't made the reforms, and one example, the munificent pension system where the average retirement age is a sprightly 54 for men and 52 for women, pension the visible symbol of a country that gives away more than it has, as one quote from one notable economist, it just highlights they haven't made the reforms in Brazil, and as you said, the crisis is going to continue to emanate from there because they're going to have to go through the hard times and there's no real bright spot looking ahead. Plus, you want to look at corruption. I've been talking for a number of years about the bull market and corruption. Well, you know, Brazil may be working very hard to get to be the top of that list. Uh, their president is under tremendous pressure right now. Uh, literally uh, hundreds of thousands of people have marched in the streets demanding uh, resignation because of corruption. And uh, that's also being reflected in the economic statistics and, of course, much more seriously in the hardships that individuals are, are facing there. And that's a story. I'm glad you brought it up, though, Rob, because that's a story is going to be more prominent for us here in Canada. It's part of the shaky foundation of the uh, coming debt crisis, I think. What's number two? 
number two is sticking with the status quo this week, but a little bit of a different angle because it's Jim Glassman talking about the U.S. Fed and, of course, interest rates, but the employment rate, employment report this Friday, and he's saying oh, this employment rate is more like an 8% unemployment rate in the U.S. when yeah. you still account for all the displacement from the Great Recession of 2008. Well, I think people have got to understand that if you're in the United States and you have not found work in six months, you're not included in the unemployment rate. I was just looking at this, Rob. I thought it was a fascinating stat that uh, since the credit crisis, 1.4 million jobs in manufacturing had been lost and replaced by 1.5 million jobs bartending or being waiters. And I thought that said a lot about the quality of this recovery. It absolutely does, and it speaks to the level of underemployment. People who are not working the jobs that they are capable of doing or they're working part-time hours instead of full-time hours. And it's very interesting because Glassman is still a bull on the U.S. economy, so this is why he's saying exactly that the U.S. Federal Reserve in this recovery is still in the sixth inning because there's still a long way to go in terms of U.S. employment gains. So he's still calling for a Fed rate hike, and that sort of fits into this discussion, which we're watching for on September 17th. But from the angle of just because they hike rates, they're still going to be below 1%, and this is still going to be an accommodative U.S. Federal Reserve. Well, the other stat that that jumps out, again, back back to the point about, you know, if you've not found a job in six months, you're not even included in this, is they've got the highest level of people not in the workforce, I think it's since 1977, the number's 94 million people are not participating in the economy. That is not a good thing. And and to me, more and more of it looks like they're permanently unemployed. A lot of... uh, Uh, literature a lot of research based on the longer you're not in the job market the less likely you are to ever get back in it so these numbers of lack of participation have been really stubborn and continue to grow but 94 million are not in the economy there it's absolutely true mike and it's a signaling problem that you speak of once you are unemployed you lose those skills you send the negative signal to your potential employer that you haven't been working for the last couple of years, and it's less of an impact that they are going to want to take a chance and hire you. So it is. It's just a compounding problem that they have. God, it's interesting how politicians love to talk about jobs, but in, in our case, in our context in Canada, we've got to remember there's three levels of government involved, and more if you include school boards, and jobs are not on the agenda as a, as a national kind of strategy because you'd have to start in the education system how appropriate on this labor day before the kids head back to school what's number one well number one it's the number one google query in canada this week but how to sponsor a syrian it's europe's and the world's migrant crisis that we're witnessing right now yeah it's interesting i was one of those google searches and i i it's interesting it's a far more complex challenge then, of course, now that it's been politicized. Uh, let me just share a quick quote from Bob Ray, who said, the refugee crisis is a case study in spin, counterspin, hyped-up partisanship, given that this global humanitarian disaster has been ignored for too long. And I would agree with that. The politicization of this I, I find uh, incredibly distasteful. I mean, you know, the, the, the whole problem with this immigration and uh, refugee slash uh, challenge, the, the tragedies that are happening throughout the world, is that it didn't start last week with some picture. You know, and, uh, but now that it's the political season, oh, it's, it's now something we should be paying attention to. 
it really is. It is a tragedy, as you said, Mike, that's gone on for a number of years, and it's going to be a huge problem. I mean, we talk about it here in Canada, it's shaping a bit of a debate here in Canada, but one absence of any hard numbers. But it mm-hmm. also, you look at Europe and the structural problems with Europe, within Europe, and it, 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 we talk about the flaws in the euro. Well, this is just another flaw of the European Union, how they can let migrants into one company and they're, uh, one country, and there's no barriers to mobility between the European Union. It, it's another flaw that I think is haunting the European Union as something that has to be addressed and has to be dealt with. Uh, let me come to the other side of this, is, uh, I, and I saw that Ipsos Reid poll that you did, that 54% of Canadians, they favor uh, you know, n- taking in more refugees, but the process is a very difficult one, and the costs are significant. And, uh, you know, there's stuff to discuss in that way. I mean, uh, the costs alone, you know, as I say, have to at least be part of the component of this discussion. Well, they do, Mike. And the Ipsos Reid poll asks Canadians very simply, would you support? The Canadian government has a mandate for sponsoring 10,000 refugees a year. The Ipsos Reid poll asks, would you sponsor another 10,000 at the cost of $100 million? Well, that $100 million cost is based on sponsoring one refugee the cost to the Canadian government about $10,277 a year. But what it looks at is just direct sponsorship, giving giving a refugee a monthly check for up to 12 months. What it doesn't necessarily encompass is some of the other costs that go along with it, like, you know, children that come into this country. And any child in primary or secondary education has the right to education in Canada. So very basic look at costs, but that's the number Ipsos Reid throws around, $100 million for 10,000 refugees, which might be a little understated. Well, as I say, I, I myself checked it out. I was one of those Google searches. Uh, you know, how do I sponsor someone? And I was interested in it's more complicated than I thought. Uh, you know, there's there's groups you can work through. Uh, uh, you know, the church community has certainly stepped up to the plate, but others also. And But it's still a process because people have to be vetted for criminal record or uh, health concerns, that kind of stuff. And you can participate in that, and people should check that out if they're interested. I certainly have. I'm, I, I haven't come to the conclusion which group I want to do it through, and I'm going to make a significant contribution. I'd be willing to sponsor an entire family of four personally, but it's, it's a lot more difficult. It's you know so much easier said than done uh, for this. So, I mean, I'm glad it's on the agenda. I wish it was when they were talking about Boko Haram in, in uh, Nigeria, for example. We have no shortage of these tragic situations. Uh, it's just more come to the forefront once the uh, boats started to come from North Africa into Europe. And, and then, of course, uh, the media here has taken far greater notice recently uh, with it. But it, it, this is a huge challenge, and it shouldn't be oversimplified just for political gain. And that's what I'm sensing right now. I, th- I just hope people don't get distracted by that. This is not a time to make political brownie points. Let's talk about helping in a real way. And that's, I think, absolutely the case. And that's where you are starting to see, I think, the leadership, John Tory in Toronto, and one of the groups that you speak of is Lifeline Syria. So looking at ways of private sponsorship instead of, as you mm-hmm. say, you know, the leaders in this political debate, oh, I'll take another 10,000, and they're the liberals, I'll take another 25,000, without actually looking at the hard numbers and what you're yeah. encompassing when you throw that number out there. Exactly, especially in terms of uh, processing administration of this. Uh, you know, that these, this is just a huge challenge that clearly the Western world has not been prepared for. And there's lots to discuss within this. And, uh, you know, and I'm glad it's getting discussed. I'm just saying uh, it's just not quite so simple, as you say, as to spit out a few numbers as if that gets the, the job done. And I think the politicization has done a huge disservice to this.
Rob, much more to talk about. That's a great top story, and I'm glad we're talking about it here. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thank you very much. Take a break. I'll come back. As I said, this may be, well, not maybe, this is the most interesting poll result I've seen during this federal election campaign. Stay with me. Nonsense to be uh, the norm. But I found this poll result very, very interesting. I said just during the opening commentary that, you know, really, we've got three parties, all variations of the status quo. That, of course, will get some people's hackles up, but I'm telling you they cannot support that. But I'm looking at this poll, Global News poll, found 40% of Canadian voters agreed that the Liberals, Conservatives, and NDP, in quotes, are basically the same. 40%. I bet that number grows before we're done. And I could give you tons of examples there. I I just thought it was interesting. Uh, We don't have an outsider running here. And that's very different from what's going on in the States. It's fascinating for me to see the political industry, the power elites in Washington, all the cheerleaders in the press, they can't understand Donald Trump's rise in U.S. politics. Well, it's straightforward. He's perceived as the anti-status quo candidate who's not beholden to special interest groups. So the polls are very clear in what they think of him. He feeds into the frustration with the political elites. But here's the part I don't think is understood. This is a big trend. It's way outside the U.S. By the way, we saw it in Vancouver with the anti-transit plan group against every possible elite jumped on board to say yes to the $7 billion transit plan. It still got handily defeated. That's the trend. Uh, look at Greece, the company, uh, the party that's been in power, Syriza. It wasn't even a party two years ago, and it, yet it formed government. And it's predicted to win the next election. In Spain, you've got the newly formed Podemos party. Well, it's going to be the big, well, it has been the big winner, but it's predicted to be a big winner in the coming national elections. In France, the far-right national front, it's riding the wave of anti-establishment sentiment. And it's leading in the polls, and it had some surprising success in the EU elections. The point is, it's interesting for me to see economics and finance are fueling political opposition to ruling elites throughout the world. I think Donald Trump is part of that trend. As I said, we don't have a Donald Trump here or a new party running in the federal election. Now, it's anyone's guess why, by the way. Maybe things aren't that bad for most of us, and hence the status quo is not as discredited as in many other parts of the world. But it's interesting to see that not one of our political parties shows any sign of understanding that broader trend. I haven't seen a political commentator here or in the States understand that's the part that Trump is sort of buying into or rather tapping into. But it's one that you're seeing throughout Europe right now. Anytime where people are getting a chance to vote, you're seeing the rise of sort of the third party outsider. And it's from both sides of the political spectrum. If there's been a perceived right wing government in power, presto, you've got a left wing group rising. If you've got a left wing government in power, presto, like in France, you've got the right wing rising. This is an anti-establishment vote that is only going to gain momentum. But as I say, fascinated to see, I wouldn't have guessed that high, but 40% of Canadian voters didn't see much difference between the three parties. They're correct. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Stephen Todd, my guest. So much to talk about, about your money, your pension, interest rates, the dollar, you name it. We'll chat about it.